Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Well, welcome. My name is Nellie, if I haven't met you. Um, I do a handful of things here at Bread. Um, one thing I help do is help co-lead a new discipleship course called 4x4, which if you haven't looked into, I hope you will in the future. Uh, we're thrilled that you're here. If this is your first time, or you're just sort of checking it out on the live stream, we always like to say, you're here on your own terms. And we really mean that. So, welcome to October. I'm hoping for sweater weather, hoping for autumn to come upon us. And with um, this very first day of October, which is my little brother's birthday, happy birthday, Anthony, um, we are introducing a new series on the book of Philippians. And I'm really happy to introduce that to you today. <clears throat> the beautiful thing about Philippians is it's a very short book in the New Testament. And you, can, you could read it in like 15 minutes. You could sit down and read it from the very beginning to the very end. And in it, you get so much good stuff about who Jesus is and what Jesus meant to the very earliest churches in Europe. So we're gonna get into that a little bit today. Um, before we get into a little bit on um, where the Philippian church was, I, I wanna sort of give you a preview of the next handful of weeks. Um, basically, some of the themes of this book that are really lovely include things like um, the fact that we are invited in Jesus to a persistent and a resilient joy, even in the midst of really hard stuff, even in the midst of suffering, even um, in the midst of impossible situations. Secondly, um, one of the themes is staying faithful to Jesus together, like in community. And along with that, deepening our love for each other in not just a superficial sort of love, but a, a deferential love, a love that says, no, actually, you first. I want to look after you before me. So it's a sort of affectionate love for each other um, that we fight for. That's what you're going to find in Philippians, along with a handful of other things. So let's take a look at where this place was. Philippians, what, what is this letter? Who, who is this letter to? Well, we have a map. 
of um, the city called Philippi. And Philippi was located in what would be now present-day Greece, land of wonderful Philodo and Hieros. I don't think I said that right. And what's that? Spanikopita. That's another favorite. But in the first century AD, in the time of when this book was written, um, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, this was known as a place called Macedonia. And Philippi, as you can see on that little map here, um, was near the sea. And so there would be a lot of folks going in and out of Philippi. What we know from archaeology is that um, at the time that Paul had this letter composed to the Philippians, the city probably wasn't that big. It was like a city of 10,000. Whereas another book in the New Testament, Thessalonians, which was written to the folks at Thessalonica, that city was like 10 times bigger than Philippi. So fun facts. What else would I like you to know about Philippi? Well, Philippi was a Roman colony, which means that uh, Rome really had a presence there in terms of like the military industrial complex, like we like to say. And so Rome's system was very much in place at Philippi and Rome's um, power would have been felt there for anyone who lived in Philippi. And they were pretty nationalistic about it. It was sort of like flag-waving for Rome. One of the things that you may want to know concerning Rome's system as an empire is that a, a pretty significant value of Rome <laughs> as an empire was that um, much like it is here, unfortunately, in the U.S., a person's growth in order to get higher in the stratosphere of social hierarchies always involved pushing somebody else down. And so some of the themes in this letter to the Philippians really challenged even the Roman Empire's own um, hopes and dreams, I should say, about what the good life looked like. Okay, great. So what else would I want to tell you about um, Philippians? Well, it's essentially a, a letter, it's a correspondence between Paul and his mentee Timothy to the church that met at Philippi. And this church was one of the first known churches to be planted in Europe. And the letter was most likely written around like 61, 62 AD. We don't know for sure, these are sort of guesses. So let's back up for a second. Who was Paul? Because we're diving into a new series straight away. Well, Paul, his story shows up in the book of Acts, which if you have not read, I really encourage you to go and read sometime in the next week or two. Paul was essentially a mega smart Jewish scholar. That's the simplest way I'll put it. He, uh, when it came to the two-thirds of our Bible, which is the Old Testament, this guy was zealous for what was written in those pages, and he knew it, and he understood it. 
And he, in his early days, was uh, fearless about persecuting these new Jesus followers. He was unafraid and really bent on putting Christians in prison and even allowing them to be killed. So the story of Paul is kind of mind-boggling when you think about the folks that God would choose to use. Uh, Paul had a large hand in composing most of, or a large part of what we now have of the, of the New Testament. And he was probably the most powerful church planter that's ever lived. But he started out as somebody who was breathing murderous threats to Jesus' followers. Pretty wild, right? But he ends up having this encounter with Jesus one-on-one on on the road to Damascus. And in this encounter, he becomes convinced over a series of days and moments that Jesus was the anointed one, was the Messiah that Paul's people for thousands of years, hundreds of years, had longed for and had waited for. And so he was able to put together all of the knowledge he had of the Old Testament, which was his Bible, and he saw it come to fruition in Jesus, and that changed everything for him. So, Paul begins what we know as one of uh, his missionary journeys to Philippi, and we pick up in the book of Acts in verse, excuse me, in chapter 16. This is basically the prehistory or the origin story of the Philippians church right here in Acts 16. And I'm going to have it put up on on the board here. So the scene that we're now in is um, somewhere around 50 AD. And we have Paul and some of his companions um, wanting to go and meet with um, Jewish believers who were in Philippi. And there's no known synagogue in Philippi. So they had to sort of find some random people out on the riverbank and sort of outside the city, not very organized, probably very ragtag. And what we see in the text um, just prior to this is um, that, that Paul finds a group of women, um, mostly Gentiles, so non-Jews, who seem to be really curious about Israel's God. And there he finds, Paul finds a woman named Lydia. And this is in verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, began to speak to the women who had gathered there, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatra named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. 
and it says, she persuaded us. So Acts is written what we um, understand to be from Luke, and so it's written in this, in this part, first person. And so you sort of get this first person moment as to what actually happened at Philippi. And what we know is that Lydia, it says in the text, um, was really into purple dyeing. And this is just a fun little note that in the ancient world, if you were into dyeing purple linen, you were most likely working with like the upper echelon of classes because that um, purple was typically used for folks like the Roman military class, which if you're into storytelling is kind of a sweet uh, foreshadowing of what is going to happen in this story and what's gonna happen in the book of Philippians. So what happens next? Um, this is actually really wild. And it says in verse 16, which I think we have up here, that there was a, um, a, a female slave girl who had a demonic spirit that could predict the future. And this slave girl um, starts following Paul around. And it says that she followed Paul and the rest of the group shouting constantly, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And it says that she sort of keeps this up over and over again until finally Paul becomes so annoyed that he turns around and tells the spirit to come out of her. And it says, as he commands her in Jesus' name, as he commands the spirit to come out of her, she's liberated. Which is kind of ironic, because it seems like the demon is like helping him like to give the message. It's like saying, it can't help but say, this is actually true. Jesus is Lord, you should listen to these people. But for whatever reason that we don't know in the text, Paul's kind of annoyed and liberates this slave girl from the spirit that's afflicting her. What happens next is that her um, captors, the folks who were essentially pimping her out for money, are not very happy that this spirit is no longer um, part of this young woman. And they no longer can make money off of her and abuse her. And so the text tells us that they essentially throw Paul and his peeps in prison. And not only do they throw them in prison, but they lock them up in like maximum security. So their feet are shackled, they're intensely looked after. And this is where the fun begins story. So Paul and his companions were told Paul and this guy named Silas are in prison. After they've been not just arrested but stripped and beaten and humiliated and it says that in verse 25 at about midnight they're in prison and what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God with such boldness that the other prisoners were listening to them. And then something happens. It says, suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake 
that the very foundations of the prison were shaken. It says, all at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came off of them. It says, the jailer who was guarding them woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that they had escaped. But Paul shouts at them, Paul shouts at the jailer, don't, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And more in this story ensues. The jailer comes to faith in Jesus, brings Paul and his companions back to his house, cleans their wounds, and they're baptized, his whole household. And then the jailer, his household, and Lydia and their friends were told are sort of collaborating as a very small church community. This is all happening in Philippi, I remember. So I just want to pause there for a moment and mention this. I wonder if we don't underestimate what we are doing when we worship the King of Kings in song together. I wonder if we have a limited imagination for what God wants to do and is doing among us when we worship. Whether you're singing and worshiping the Lord in your native tongue or in a prayer language from the Lord, the very act of lifting up Jesus has the effect of actually breaking the chains that bind us in every way. I'm talking demonic strongholds, generational trauma, ways that we have been held back from living our truest selves, everything. And at the heart of that, it's God who does the work. Isn't that beautiful? So, this is what we know of the birth story of the humble little church at Philippi. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a story like that? With all of that love and power married together? So let's take a look now at the very first chapter of Philippians as we dive in. I'm gonna invite Logan to come up. Give it up for Logan. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Beautiful job. Thanks, Logan. So we're in chapter one of Philippians, and we're just looking at basically the first half. We won't be able to go through the whole chapter to get today. And in that, we're going to focus on a couple of key moments. But what I want to first lay out for you is um, that Philippians is one of a handful of what we understand to be prison letters. So in other words, Paul is writing to friends in another city, and he's writing from prison. Now, we don't exactly know where he was imprisoned. Um, most scholars assume that it's most likely Ephesus, um, just based on a few factors. But we do know that he would have been um, locked up in a traditional Roman way, which was basically he would have had like one arm chained to his jailer. Okay, so he's pretty, in, pretty much in close quarters with the folks who are the military industrial complex overseeing, making sure he doesn't escape. And he's writing to his friends at Philippi um, against the backdrop of a couple things. So there's, there's two things I want you to keep in mind as we look at Philippians 1 and the rest of the book. One is this, two assumptions. The first is that there was rich friendship at the heart of this letter. It gives us a picture, really, of what the family of God and what a local church at its best can look like. And what's really interesting in the Greek is that um, basically Paul doesn't even use the traditional word for friendship, which is philos. He's often in the book using like familial language. So it's an even wider language of family when he's talking about his friends in Philippi. Secondly, Philippians assumes that walking with Jesus will be a very hard road. And this might be hard for us because in the juxtaposition of this story, in the context of this story, um, Paul and these early believers were living under the shadow of an, a very strong empire. And it's tricky for us to now read the Bible living as the empire, right? So we have to do some work to sort of humble ourselves in our imagination to read this text and to understand it. But thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit to help us in that. So in this theme that Philippians assumes, Philippians assumes that walking with Jesus will be a hard road, but that in that, persistent 
indefatigable joy, like joy that can't be quenched, is possible in the face of pain when you're connected to the living Jesus. So what that meant for the context of this letter, the actual people that lived at Philippi, they faced potential death, persecution. They were living under the thumb of Rome, as was Paul, as he's writing them from prison. So as part of that, as you're hearing Paul's words in this book, the backdrop is Paul's quite beautiful relationship with Jesus that's assumed, and also his relationship with the Philippians. Paul's relationship with Jesus allowed him to have this uh, unflappable joy even in the midst of being chained to a Roman guard in a prison. So keep that in mind as we're reading through this chapter. So let's look at a couple of important moments in um, Philippians 1. Let's look at uh, verses 3 through 9, if we could pull that up. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And the next verse. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So this is sort of a, an, a typical traditional way to open a letter in Greco-Roman times, it's sort of like a health wish, but it has Paul's literary twist on it. He's emphasizing that as a, a friend of the Philippians and as a pastor and as a teacher, he actually carries them in his heart. And he sees them as not just, not a project, but a partner in the gospel with him. So remember that the beginnings of this little humble church was in Acts 16 with all of those supernatural things that happened. And they hold this in their memory together. So he's in prison, but the memory of all that happened that additionally isn't recorded for us, all of the life that they live together in those short moments is actually holding Paul together in some way, the memory of their friendship. So in verse six, notice this. Paul, the, the one who has all this sort of supernatural perseverance, maybe one of the better examples of resilience in the whole Bible after Jesus, he says this really particular thing. He says, it's not your perseverance or your resilience. It's not the thing that mattered most. It's Jesus' work. He says, he is the one who began this good thing in you, this good work, and he will carry it on to completion. I want to park here for just a moment because this is sort of a really juicy bit. It's an important part of the story the start of the book. So Jesus will complete it. This thing that he began is not up to us. This is where, for our part, in trying to apply this to our lives, uh, we're met with all of the lies of the hustle mentality 
that we've been brought up on. And it's a paradox, right? He's saying, he himself, Jesus, will, the one who started this good thing in you, he will carry it on all the way to completion. He's the one who first initiated, first called you, first invited you into relationship, first wooed you to some extent, and you responded, and he's the one who will complete it. In other words, he's the one who will make these friends at Philippi look like Jesus in the end, to become like him. And so he's saying, it's, it's, not, up, it's not up to you. Even in the midst of this great persecution, all of the struggles of living in this Roman colony. But it's a paradox. And it's actually quite difficult to even um, communicate from up front, but I'll try to give you some examples. It's a paradox because, yes, it's all up to God to complete this work in us, but it does uh, rely on us to some extent, right? We still have to do the work of opening up our clenched fists, metaphorically, in our spirit. We have to do the work of saying yes to God. We have to do the work that is sometimes really challenging to say, I need help. God, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this life thing with me at the center. I need you, Jesus, to reign and be king in my life. A lot of times, at least in my life, it's meant letting go of the pride of having it all together and the self-protection of um, sort of wanting to keep my weaknesses hidden and allow God to do that work in me in the midst of community, which is hard. It's vulnerable. So the text says, he will do the work. Another translation of this verse says, I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job. He will stay with us. He hasn't left us alone like orphans. He's given us his spirit to keep us comforted, to remind us of all the things that Jesus said. So this idea in, in verse 6 matches up really nicely to some things that you'll see in chapter 2 where uh, Paul says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work. He's sort of tipping his hat to the fact that it's God who does the work and we still have some things to work out. I think this truth about God doing the work is really beautiful because honestly it shows his kindness, which it's the kindness of the Lord that in this moment of time is most impacting me personally. I'll get into that in a moment, but it's the kindness of the Lord doing the work, doing the work of carrying us through this life 
making us more like Jesus, where we can relax. We can sort of fall back into his embrace. We can live from a place of sort of radical rest, if we're willing. Because he's asking us to do the work of trusting him. He's asking us to allow him to handle that thing, whatever that thing is that's vexing you. But how does this work? I mean, we still have a part to play. So I'm going to give you just a really simple example. It's pretty rudimentary, and it's not a perfect uh, illusion. But I play pickleball. It's something I've become somewhat uh, um, obsessed with in the last year. (laughs) Yeah last year and a half, and there's a handful of us here at Bread who have a little informal pickleball club, the Bread and Butter Pickleball Club. Yeah, and you should sign up for our tournament if you're coming to the weekend away. So here's the thing. Um, I, in the last year or so, over the course of my schedule, haven't gotten to practice as much as some of my uh, friends here at Bread, like Alicia, Tavia, and Joe. And I have to deal with the reality of my not having shown up on the court and practiced as much every time I go and play because I'm struck by the reality that I'm kind of (laughs) B-team because I have to get better in order to be able to reach their level, like just full stop. My ego doesn't love it, but that's the fact, right? And it makes me think that in the same way, or in a similar way, with our walk with Jesus, we still have to show up on the court, right? We, have to, we still have to practice every day. That practicing is a spiritual practice that involves our whole bodies. It involves us showing up with God every day and saying, I'm open to you, I need your help. Please speak to me, Holy Spirit. Spending time with him, in the word, spending time with other believers in Jesus and learning from them, being challenged by each other. So that's just a very small picture of um, this this tension that I think we have to hold in this, this passage. It's why we need each other. Honestly, um, I could talk about this for a while, but it's a lot easier to invite you into my life and you to invite me into your life to see how this tension is worked out because as we are open and vulnerable with each other in friendship, um, we get to experience this, this reality, right? It's one of the things that I really took from um, Hannah's talk last week about Jesus being the resurrection and the life, that even Jesus himself opened himself up to deep friendship in a way that his friends could be disappointed in him. And so the question that I keep thinking is, to what extent have I allowed people to know me where I can actually disappoint them? Sort of a barometer of vulnerability. I long to see that here at Bread, really to see us really going for it in friendship and community. Okay, so let's pop back into this passage. 
verse 8, it says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What strikes me here is Paul is physically in chains. He's chained by his arm to his Roman guard, but in a very powerful other way, in a, in a perhaps deeper reality, he's free. He's so unbound. He himself is bound and free, paradoxically, because he's so in love with Jesus and he's so connected to the affection that Jesus has for him. And that affection spills over into his friendships with these folks at Philippi. In this next verse, it says that his prayer is for a love that abounds, a love that is always growing in experiential knowledge and insight. This is really beautiful. Um, Keep in mind that Paul was a Jewish man, and he was shaped by Hebrew thought. He was shaped by the Hebrew thought that we have in the Old Testament. Whereas for us, we've been shaped mostly by um, the Western Enlightenment and understandings of knowledge that come from folks like Descartes. Descartes. So for Paul, when he talks about things like knowing and knowledge, it is a, a thicker concept than what we think of with like just mental knowledge, rational knowledge. So for Paul, when he's saying, I want your love to grow big and wide and deep in knowledge and depths of insight. He's talking about a lived understanding, like a knowledge that is connected to relationship, a knowledge that is deeply embodied and connected to one another. This gets more at like the Hebrew understanding of what knowledge was for Paul. And he's saying, This is what I long for, for you, my friends, at Philippi. Even in the midst of his own suffering in prison, and even in the midst of what I I presume they were experiencing in Philippi under Roman occupation. So for them, it was life-threatening suffering. And the thing that he wants for them most is for their love to grow. Isn't that profound? And what this flows out of is their relationship with Jesus. So as we um, finish up here, I want to tell you just a quick story. Um, So I've not experienced life-threatening suffering, um, but I can say for the last handful of weeks, man, it's been a rough month. It's been really challenging in a handful of ways for a handful of reasons. Uh, One of which, I'm happy to tell you over an adult beverage, but one of which is the trash fire that is doing online dating in your early 40s. So one one evening this, just recently, um, I was feeling an absolute mess. I, I was in tears, feeling super alone, pretty awful, kind of in that moment of being paralyzed by like, I don't even know what to do next. And I flopped on my bed and was just sort of looking out 
the big window that's in my room. And I was sort of asking God desperately uh, to speak to me it's in one of these like really not pretty prayers. It's like might have involved an F word and lots of help. And it wasn't audible, it wasn't anything particularly like profound, but all I can tell you is that immediately, in that moment, the voice of the living God spoke to me in my, like to the deepest core of me, such that I, in a heartbeat, just completely calmed down and my whole body was at rest. I stopped crying, and I knew that I wasn't alone. And he had this way of sort of putting in perspective all the stuff that I was experiencing in that moment. And it was in that experience of God's voice that I have been reflecting for the last week or two since that happened because it's the kindness of God's voice that will sustain us. And for me, while I feel like I have an embarrassment of riches of people who love me and whose voice in my life I absolutely cherish, there is no voice, there is no one's voice who can calm me and give me rest like the voice of the living God. And I share that because the backdrop of this book of Philippians is Paul's experience of that voice and the Philippians' experience of the risen Jesus in their life. If I could have the band come up, here's my my question for us. As we lean into Jesus as a community and as we do what Tavia challenged us to do two weeks ago and abide in Jesus, abide, get close, snuggle up with him, allow him to tell us the truth about ourselves. Philippians 1 reminds us that it's he, he is the one that will do the work to carry us to completion. And as we get to know his voice better, we will be able to discern what is best. We'll know what's best. We'll have the wisdom to know whether to walk this way or that way. We'll be able to actually speak not only into our own lives, but into the lives of each other in a very profound way. So what I discern the Lord saying to us today is this invitation to release the clenched fist, to reopen our inner lives to God, to the one who loves us, the one who calls us beloved. And the invitation is to expect more, to expect joy that can't be defeated, to expect more.
And so if you're resistant to this idea in any way, I've been there, I hear you, I can empathize. I'd love to pray for you when we have ministry time coming up. But as we close, would you stand with me? And um, I would love to pray for us. I do want to say that um, we always love to pray for people at the end of service. So for any reason, even if you come up a hundred times, I want to encourage you to come up and get prayer. But in particular, if you feel like you're resistant to this idea of opening up more to Jesus and expecting more, I'd love to pray for you. So if you, if you would, open up your hands.